Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 219 of Jesus H. Christ, and this is part nine. Is that his last name? And you have to say it like it's a question, not like, is that his last name? But is that his last name? Subtitle, of course, for this entire uh, group of episodes, the Jesus H. Christ episodes, is The Man, The Mystery, The Middle Initial. And I actually have an audience of one here today in the back house with me. The right legendary Jill Rowe is in the back house. Hello, Jill Rowe. I know she's here all the way from London. She's been staying with us for a few days. And uh, go back. If you if uh, you do want to hear from Jill Rowe, and I'm sure some of you remember the Robcast where I interviewed her and she absolutely blew the roof off the joint. That's Jill Rowe, R-O-W-E. Pleasure to have you <laughs> in in the audience of one. <laughs> now, uh, oh, and uh, one more thing. Not that I had some other things. I don't know why this is the one more thing, but Ace Hotel, December 1st, last show of the Holy Shift Tour. Pete Rollins will be opening uh, I think it's the 40th city, 40th night of uh, this tour that's been going all year long, and I would love to see you December 1st, downtown Los Angeles, at the last night of the Holy Shift Tour, because it's always more fun when you're there. Now, this episode, which is part nine of Jesus H. Christ, is fundamentally different than the other episodes, because so far what I've been doing is essentially reading these stories about what Jesus did and said. And then what we've come back to again and again is the first century Jewish world of Jesus and what these things he said and did meant in that world. And then we've sort of worked through the implications of what that means for you and I here and now in this world. But what's really interesting to me is that when these first followers of Jesus wrote about him, and roughly the generation following the Jesus person event phenomenon, they didn't really talk about the first century rabbi who had disciples and traveled around the Galilee. They didn't really talk about him spitting in dirt and rubbing in people's eyes, insisting that the temple is coming down, announcing you're already at the party, the one who the king is trying to kill him, all that sweat and blood and struggle and crowds and healing of, of the Jesus event. What they talked about was the Christ. For these first generation of Jesus followers, it wasn't so much about the first century Jewish rabbi, it was about something that he revealed. And the word that they used to describe this happening was mystery. Now let me show you a couple of passages to give you an idea of just how often this is the word they choose to use. In the letter to the Ephesians, wait, <laughs> the Ephesians. In the letter to the Ephesians, a city called Ephesus, there's a letter to him. That is a fantastic, I don't even know what that means. Um, in the letter to the Ephesians, this writer, Paul, who wrote big chunks of the New Testament, he said, this is about a generation after Jesus, that God may known to us the mystery of God's will according to God's good pleasure, which was purposed in Christ. So he says the divine has been up to something in the world, and what the divine has been doing has been for the divine's good pleasure. Once again, uh, God is directly connected with joy and pleasure, and that the way that God was doing this, it was being purposed in Christ. So God is up to something in the world through the Christ, and then he says to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now, that's a giant sentence. But essentially, what the writer is saying here is he's referring to Jesus as a mystery that has now been disclosed or shown or revealed that there's some sort of unity being brought to everything on heaven in heaven and on earth. And whatever this mystery is involving the unity of all things, it's coming about because of, and the word he uses is Christ. 
Now, same writer, Letter to the Romans, says, I don't want people to be ignorant of this mystery. At the end of his Letter to the Romans, he says, uh, he speaks of the revelation of the, minist- of the mystery. In 1 Corinthians, uh, another letter that he sends, he says, listen, I tell you a mystery. He talks about God's grace and the mystery made known to me by revelation. He also says, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed. In another place, he says, to make plain to everyone this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Then in a letter to the Colossians, and the reason why I'm just taking you through all these is it isn't like a one-off of, hey, Christ is like a mystery that's been revealed. It just comes up again and again. In the letter to the Colossians, he says, the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed. He says, to them, God has chosen to make known the mystery which is in Christ. He also says later, so that the people would have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. So the word these first Jesus followers used to describe the Jesus event, the Jesus life, the Jesus phenomenon, is they refer to it as the revealing of a mystery that had previously been hidden. Jesus H. Christ is the revealing of something that's been true the whole time. A mystery that had been hidden up to that point, but then made known. So for them, it had been there for all of history. So for them, the Christ is something true and embedded, integrated in all of history. Something that's been true the whole time, but just now exposed, revealed, seen, understood, and experienced like never before. Now here's why this is so huge. For a large number of people in our world, the fundamental way they were told the Jesus story is as a solution to a problem. People made a mess of things, and so God had to figure out a way to fix this mess, right? And so God was like, well, I've I've got a son here. He doesn't have a job. You go down there and do something. Go down and tell them how bad they are, and that'll inspire them. Right? So oftentimes it's, uh, it was dark, people were lost, and then God came up with a solution to the problem. There are even bumper stickers, Jesus is the answer. The answer to a problem, the solution to something that was broken. And so sometimes it'll be like, he came to die to fix the thing, uh, raising, of course, questions, where did he come from? Like outer space, where did he come from? It's a lovely metaphor, but the problem for many people is when Jesus is a last-minute solution cooked up and then inserted late in the game, it raises all sorts of questions. Sometimes the central framing people have heard is, he came to earth to die so that everybody could go to heaven, which essentially says the best God can do is a solution that has nothing to do with the trials and tribulations and heartaches of this world here and now. But what you find in the New Testament is these writers go to great lengths to make it clear, to counter that idea with this endless insistence that Jesus is not a last minute insertion into the human story, but that Jesus H. Christ is the revealing of something that had been true the whole time. They call him the Christ. He comes to show you something true, a revelation of that which has been hidden up to now, but what has been true the whole time. Now, a note about the cross, because often it's Jesus came to die on the cross. There was a solution, there was a problem, And what God did was cooked up a solution to the problem, and God's answer was to kill God's son. That'll make things better, which ends up 
raising all sorts of awkward questions. Are you with me on this? Like, why did he have to die? Is this the best God can do, have someone killed? What kind of God needs somebody to be killed so that that God can be happy and at peace with humanity? And actually, when the Jesus story is told as a solution to a problem that God cooked up at the last minute in which God needed to kill God's son so that somehow God would be content or at peace or reconciled to humanity, actually what it does is it perpetuates the very myth of redemptive violence that has haunted humanity for so long. The myth of redemptive violence is the lie that things are made better through more violence. And so you can see why when this was the fundamental way of telling the Jesus story, God needed more violence to fix what's broken. What you'll notice is the people who hold this understanding are often end up being the very same people who support a long list of violent policies and practices and postures that make the world an even more fractured and dangerous place. You can see why these stories aren't just abstract tellings and narratives but they shape our psyches, they shape our politics, they shape the kinds of things we tell our kids about the nature of the world that we're living in. How are things ever made better through someone having to kill someone else? Or another way this gets told and framed in the Jesus is a last minute solution cooked up by God to fix the problem is sometimes it gets personalized, like he died for you. He was thinking of you on the cross. So, you know, be good and don't litter, right? <laughs> Any, anybody familiar with like, like a cosmic guilt trip where it gets highly, highly individualized to the point where, wait, what? How? What? And the questions just come light and reft. It feels inconsistent. It feels oddly violent. It feels irrational and impetuous. So, what, what I want to show you is that these, again and again and again, we'll just keep circling back to this central idea, but for these first writers, Jesus H. Christ was not an insertion late in the game, but was the disclosure of something that had been true the whole time, the revealing of a mystery that had been hidden up until then. Now, a few notes on the revealing of this mystery. First off, that passage in Ephesians, the first one that we looked at, it begins with according to God's pleasure, purposed in Christ. It's as if the writer says, the divine is up to something and pleasure is the engine. Yeah, you just can't say that enough. It's like pleasure is the engine of the revealing of this mystery, which in some ways has a callback to the Genesis poem uh, that begins the whole thing, which is the God who creates and takes joy and pleasure in the creation. Trees, rocks, fields, light, dark, it's good, it's good, it's good. Differences, types, species, it's good, it's good. Diversity, it's good. Vitality, it's good. This whole Hebrew consciousness is shaped by a divine creator who takes joy in creation. There is a fundamental joy in new creation. So you can, even, you can pick up echoes of this when this writer Paul says, now you have to understand that what's happening in the Christ, what was happening in the Jesus event, is some sort of pleasure in a continuing new creation. The world is not done. The times are still rolling on, reaching their fulfillment. In that other passage, he writes uh, that the mystery was hidden in God who created all things. And by the way, the literal Greek translation there of all things is all things. (laughs) You didn't see that coming. Right. It's like the writers again and again and again speak of the expansive nature of the Christ. They essentially say the thing that's been true all along is baked into the universe itself. It's woven into the fabric of creation. It is cosmic in scale and scope. 
let's pause here for a second. Perhaps you grew up in a world with a very narrow tribal Jesus. Something within you is like, I cannot do any worldview, religion, spiritual community, understanding of Jesus that's so narrow, it's so tribal, it's so exclusive. I am with you, neither can I. <laughs> you see why this is so important. When these writers are speaking about the first century Jewish rabbi, there was the person, the event, the movement involving flesh and blood and geography and specific people. But what they're insisting is that what was happening there was like a window, like a portal, a revelation about something that's true about the very nature of the universe. So the particulars for them of this Jesus of Nazareth were always directly linked to the cosmic implications of what you are seeing happening in and through something. It was like the particulars of this flesh and blood were always about the universal spirit moving through all people, places, flesh, and blood. It's truth about the whole thing. See, this is why uh, when you hear those stories of Jesus and they speak to you at some deep level, grace, love, resisting injustice, unconditional acceptance. You are already at the party. See, they speak to you something about what it means to be human, what it looks like to build a better world. He keeps insisting that the good news is about the lost and the least. It's grace, trust, peace, generosity, and something within you says, yes, yes. You're resonating with something true. It's not just like a nice sentiment or emotion. The insistence of these first Jesus writers was that you were resonating with something true about the very nature of reality. He comes to reveal how things truly are. So when you're generous and it feels good to be generous, this isn't just a nice altruistic gesture. This isn't just a warm sentiment. For them, it goes way beyond that. It is reflective at some deep level about how things actually are. <laughs> okay, let's keep going, because that phrase in the letter to the Ephesians was he comes to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And what you see again and again for them is the Christ is about all people. Now, these were people who came from a very specific Jewish tradition, and yet notice this one line where he says, this mystery is that through the gospel, through this good news announcement of Jesus' radical grace, Gentiles, which, which, which for the Jewish consciousness, Gentiles is basically like everybody else, the whole world beyond us. Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body. So again and again and again, what they speak of is a promise in the Christ of a unifying of all the tribes because there was only ever one human family. They often speak of Gentiles and Jews, which is a very first century way of saying everybody. It was a loaded, uh, it was a very, like a, a powerful way of speaking of always, always, always all people. That their insistence is that in the Christ, there is an inherent drive to oneness. Now, obviously, you can resist this. We see this all around us. You can subvert this. You can try to divide people. You can cook up all sorts of boundaries and borders and divisions, but their insistence is that you are going against the tide, that the movement is towards all of us together as one body. And so for them, the Christ comes to bring everybody together. So it's about people, but it's also about the very nature of the cosmos. That's the all things part. For them, people were being invited to join up with something as big and wide in scale and scope as creation itself. Everything is connected to everything else. Everybody is connected to everybody else. Let's pause for a second. Uh, think about how much you have read and heard, specifically in the past uh, 24 months, 
about how polarized and divided we are politically. And you read just a little bit and you realize, oh, all around the world, things seem to be polarized and divided more than ever. And something within you knows that this division isn't good. Something within you knows that this polarization is hurting everyone. When you see somebody struggling and you see people who have the means and resources to help them but are completely indifferent and this grieves you. When you see our treatment of the planet and the horrific continuing fire hose of science and data showing us that our planet in many way and our future of our planet and its health hangs in the balance. That sense you have of this is not right. Do you see what these first writers are saying? They're saying your sense this is not right is not just an emotion, it's not just a feeling, it's not just that you're sad or grieved. Your sense that this is not right has a far deeper grounding, that the Christ comes to awaken your consciousness to this is not how things are supposed to be, that things are to head in a very different direction. And what they keep insisting is the Christ comes to wake us up, one planet, one tribe, everybody is your neighbor, we're all in this together, one global family, every cliche you've ever heard, the Christ comes to announce, you're right, it's true. It's not just an intuition you have, it's something true about the very nature of reality. This writer Paul, uh, who we've been when reading, he has this one line, the Christ comes to destroy the dividing wall of hostility between everybody everywhere. Yes. Now, let's keep going because we're just getting started. A bit more about the, revolu- uh, the revelation of this mystery. Uh, by the way, this is why uh, a side note, how you rarely hear me talking about one religion verse, versus another. First off, I could not be more bored when people do boxing match between different religions. Please, I'm already asleep. <laughs> because the last thing Jesus H. Christ comes to do is start another system that you can attach to and prop yourself up to that would divide each other that we own our identities and our differences, and yet when they become ways to divide ourselves further, he comes to destroy the dividing walls between us. So when somebody's identity, specifically religious, denominational identities, when they become just another label for people to grasp and cling to, another way to divide ourselves, That's going the wrong direction. Can you see how easy it is for religion in the name of Jesus H. Christ to actually work against what Jesus Christ came to do, which is wake you up to how everybody is your neighbor? (laughs) I know, we're starting to preach, my friends. Or secondly, have you ever heard somebody talk about how Uh, talk about, you know, spiritual, religious stuff, you know, what does that have to do with anything? Uh, But when we talk about the Christ, that's what we're talking about, everything, right? Because that's the real discussion. What is the nature of the world we're living in? What's it made of? Where is it headed? Where will we find the joy? What ultimately matters? These are not tangential questions over here in the corner. What these early Jesus followers were doing was insisting that the universe is bent in a particular direction, that all these hunches and notions and murmurings that reside deep within you about where you long for it to go, that those are to be listened to because the Christ is telling you the truth about the very nature of the whole thing. He comes to show you what's been true the whole time. Now, three big words I want to walk you through because these writers use some very specific language about what the Christ has always been up to in the world. And uh, so we'll just start through that. The first one is creating, then sustaining 
and then reconciling. Okay, first, creating. In uh, the Gospel of John, the writer John begins his gospel by saying, because he's going to tell you a Jesus story, but what's interesting is when he tells you his Jesus story, he begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, in the beginning is also how the book of Genesis starts. So you can see right there that John is connecting Jesus Christ with creation. So there's this creation poem, which is how the Bible starts, in which the same exclo- there's this explosive big bang creation energy that unleashes whole new worlds. And it's as if John says, when I talk about the Christ, that's what I'm talking about. That you, you and me, our new creation, all of those moments when you woke up to a better tomorrow, all of those moments when you got a little more freedom and liberation, all of those moments when grace did something to you. He says, you and your new creation flows out of a larger new creation. The very energies that brought the universe into existence and continue to move the whole thing forward. It's like he says, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about Jesus Christ. That energy and creativity and life force that surges through solar systems and plants and waves and salsa and dancing and sex and wine and little kids running around in the backyard. Are you with me on this? That energy that animates it all, flesh and blood in the entire cosmos. It's like John begins his gospel by going, when I talk about Jesus, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Christ. That's what Jesus comes to reveal. The affirmation of creation and all its vastness and diversity and wonder and beauty, science, nature, art, math, physics, design, beauty. Yes, when we're talking about the Christ, we're talking about the creation, the creative energies that surge through the universe. And so what the Christ conscious does, Christ consciousness does, is it invites you to affirm and celebrate the good and the true, and the beautiful everywhere you find it. It opens you up to the goodness of creation all around you. By the way, there's this great line in Corinthians where uh, this man Paul, he says, all things are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. It's this big, wide, expansive embrace and joyous affirmation of the goodness of creation and ongoing new creation wherever you find it. I know. Raise your glasses. So good. Oh, by the way, side note. Despair is what happens when there's a lack of new creation, when things just are what they are and there's a a deep sense of helplessness and impotence, like there's nothing you can do about it. That's why these stories work on us like they do. They insist that there can always be a new creation. And that's the power of this first century rabbi, is people saw in him the most powerful creative energies of the universe at work, in flesh and blood, liberating people from oppression and despair and anxiety. By the way, when Jesus is baptized, he is lowered, he lowers into the waters and spirit descends on him. Well, what's interesting is the creation story is about waters and about spirit hovering over the waters. And it's the same word there, actually, in the story of Jesus' baptism and in the creation poem. So what the writer is doing is saying, This is what Jesus does. He comes to enter in to the waters, the chaos and depth of your waters, the despair, the lostness, the confusion, the pain. He comes to enter in to the waters of each of us, each of it, because in first century Jewish consciousness, waters was depth, abyss, terror. 
He comes, the unknown darkness. He comes to enter in to the depths and waters of our lives in order to bring about new creation. So for these writers, they're constantly connecting the particular and the cosmic. You, wherever you are, in your unique pains and struggles, and the very nature of the world we're living in. They keep insisting there's something going on here, and you can invite it into you. You can be a part of it. You are invited into it. There is something happening here. Now, there's not just creating, but these writers also spoke of uh, what I would call sustaining. Uh, when this Paul writes to the Colossians, he says, For in the Christ all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, or I would say, or presidents. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. <laughs> Let's just take a minute. If you're washing the dishes, let's just set down the dishes for a second. If you're driving, let's pull over for a second. If you're working out, hop off the treadmill for a minute. You realize what he's saying there. He's saying everything already is sustained by the Christ. He holds all things together. So Jesus is the revelation of the mystery woven in the very fabric of creation and central to the mystery is this Christ presence, person, energy, animating force that holds the whole thing together. In him, all things hold together. Everybody and everything is at some level already in Christ. The life that we're all already participating in. <laughs> I know. What do you call this thing that we're already in? You can see why then when the missionary is going to take Jesus to them, you can see why the New Testament writers are not talking about taking Jesus to them. They are talking about all of us waking up to the Christ that we're already in. See, oftentimes what happens is the Jesus stories become foreign to the life that you know, something odd and strange. And honestly, Many people have had this experience where somebody is talking about their religious views about Jesus, and you're like, what does that have to do with anything? But these first Jesus writers took great pains to say, no, 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 you're already in the Christ, the creating, sustaining energy of the universe, and it's good, and it's for you, and it's love, and it's forgiveness, and it's grace, and it's unconditional acceptance. It's like they come to name the life that you have been sustained by the entire time. There's this great story about uh, the Apostle Paul. He shows up in, uh, it's told in the book of Acts, he shows up in the city of Lystra, and these people have none of the same sort of uh, cultural heritage and background that he does. And he has this great line where he's come to tell them about the Christ, but he says, who do you think fills your stomachs with food? Who fills your hearts with joy and laughter? He's, he, it's like he hasn't come to jam some foreign thing into their hearts or into their world. He's come to help them name and see that which they've been receiving and living in the whole time. Yes, the Christ is always all things, all people. This is why Jesus says, I'll be lifted up and draw all people to myself. This is why in the letter to the Corinthians, he dies for everyone. The resurrection is everyone. We're waking up to what has always been. It's interesting when Jesus uses the word repent in the New Testament, that word essentially means see things in a new way. And then he speaks of a realm of the divine that is around you. It is here. It is now. It is within you. He comes to help you see what's been true the whole time, creating, sustaining, and then one more, reconciling. 
there's this line in, in Paul's letter to the Colossians where he says, God is, reckless, re- God is reconciling through Christ all things in heaven and on earth. So once again, it's not just people, it's everything. It's cosmic in scope. Now, this reconciling, which essentially means to put back together that was that which previously was torn apart, uh, when you see this first century Rabbi Jesus then, and he's touching lepers who uh, you weren't to touch, and he's talking to Samaritan women who you weren't to talk to, and he's crossing the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and he's freeing people from oppressive spirits, and he's crossing all the divisions and borders that people have erected to divide and keep us apart. He has no regard for such nonsense. And then on the cross, he tells the insurgent next to him that they'll be together, right? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Yes, reconciling. Reconciling is when two things come back together. He comes to bring it all back together, to heal it, to restore it, all of the ways we've managed to divide ourselves, everything broken and fragmented. There's this great line in the Gospel of John where he says, believe me when I say, I am in the Father. So he says, I am one with the divine. The Father is in me. The divine is in me. It is the Father in me who is doing the Father's work. He essentially says, I am in the divine. The divine is in me, and I come to bring you into this unity, harmony, and oneness. Think of all of the longings, the aches, the desires we have for things to be put back together. Of course, that's the Christ in you. That's the Christ consciousness speaking in you, confirming and affirming that, yes, this is how things are to be. And when you see those acts of kindness and generosity and they stir you at some level, of course, of course. Actually, there's that bumper sticker, commit random acts of kindness. The thing about it is kindness can't be random because it's tapping in to what's true about the whole thing. So what you're doing is you're looking for the Christ in everybody. We're in this together, not as a cliche uh, or a song, but as a truth. It's not a trivial sort of sentiment. It's true. Yeah, it's true. There's a phrase that people often use. Uh, Martin Luther King used it. He was actually getting it from somebody else. The moral arc of the universe is long, and it bends towards justice. And we all go, yes, yes, yes. That's another way of saying there's a reconciliation of all things in the works. Do you see why this is so huge? We do not give up on human history, because that's the temptation, right? The temptation is to check out. The temptation is to check the news and be like, I knew it, the thing is falling apart. And this is why these first writers kept bringing up this all things in reconciliation, is they kept insisting that the whole thing is headed somewhere and that our longings for peace and justice and liberation and equality, they are not in vain. Our actions and our efforts are not wasted. They're all part of how the whole thing actually works. By the way, when we're talking about the Christ then, of course all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds and nations and religions and perspectives and worldviews have witnessed to the Christ. That shouldn't shock anybody. They We've sing about this. We work for this. We meditate on this, of course. And obviously, some people would name it the Christ, and some people would have other names for it. This should not surprise us that if something is baked into the very nature of creation, people would have been pointing to it and naming it and trying to line their lives up with it. Do you see why the particularness of Jesus frees you and opens you to affirm the Christ wherever you spot it. Yes, yes, yes. And by the way, can you see why some of those questions that come up for some folks again and again, is Jesus the only way? Can you see why those are the wrong questions? 
let's just be very clear. Can you see by questions about which religion is the best? Obviously, some stories are better than others. Some stories move us closer to the reconciliation of all things. They shape us. They form us. Some stories speak better to the dignity of the human experience. But oftentimes, these sorts of questions come from a failure to grow beyond ethnic and tribal alliances. You can see why that is. What happens is people have an experience with the Christ and then assume that it must, I have to be right and everybody else has to be wrong. The whole thing gets read through the lens of sometimes ego and ethnocentric consciousness. And so essentially what happens is the story gets in the way of the thing Jesus comes to do, which was to take us into such a place that we love our neighbor because we have no them, because we've come to see and take part in the reconciliation of all things. He comes to do something far more significant than get us to say the right things. He comes to invite us into a better way of being human. Yes, it's an invitation to a way of living and being and acting. It's a nonviolent, compassionate, generous, endlessly forgiving everybody, everything, where we belong to tribe and yet we transcend our tribal allegiances because we understand that what the Christ is up to involves every person and every tribe and the whole world, and it's actually as big and wide as the cosmos. <laughs> this thing, is this a, I feel like this is some sort of extended sermon, rant, poem. I, don't <laughs> I know, do you see why these ideas are so beautiful and compelling and powerful? Do you see why these ideas in many ways turn the world upside down? And can you see how many versions of the Jesus story miss the thing that Jesus H. Christ comes to do. Now, uh, let's wrap this up at some level, although if it's any good wrap-up, all it's going to do is give us more to talk about. But a, a couple of questions, um, and these are questions that I have heard specifically. I, I would say all of these questions are questions I've heard in the past year. Um, First off, the question, so why Jesus? Um, I swear that comes up anytime I do a Q&A. Why Jesus? Uh, here's a place to start. It's good to have a tradition or a lineage. It's good to be grounded and centered in a tradition. And actually, the truth is, people rarely grow into greater spiritual maturity without following some sort of path. That's just a, a, a basic, obvious truth about the human experience. A grab bag of various bits and pieces with no larger coherence or order or frame of reference generally doesn't lead to the kind of long-term elevation of consciousness and action and understanding that actually transform us into more Christ-like people. I realize that's fairly obvious, but, but I actually think it's a, a, a rather radical truth that is needed uh, more than ever. Here's an example. Do you want world peace? Because I do. <laughs> to have world peace, we're going to have to have a majority of the population move beyond a tribal consciousness. So how do people move to larger, more expansive views of the world beyond just themselves and the people who are like them? How do people learn to engage with the other who is not like them? How does, does that just magically happen? What we know from thousands of years of human history is generally we have to be taught things in some sort of coherent way. And that generally involves some sort of tradition or lineage. Yeah, yeah. Because you start with an egocentric, very normal human development, you, the building of yourself, and then you move to some sort of affiliation with people around you, tribal, group, uh, 
But then you move beyond that to uh, an identification with the world and realizing everybody at some level is your nature and uh, is your neighbor. And on from there, wars generally come from earlier stages of understanding. Uh, two thoughts about that. One about forgiveness and the other about resentment. Obviously, if you think about uh, like America right now, much of our polarization and division comes from deeply held resentments. Well, how do we move on from our resentments? How do we become free of them? How do we name them? How do we have compassion for the resentments of others? How do we learn to listen to how did people get that resentful? And what systems created that, and how can we dismantle those systems so that they don't antagonize and wound people at such deep levels that they would vote and act in harmful ways? Well, does that just happen naturally? No. We generally have to be taught about that. We have to learn and move through stages. Or uh, what was the other one? Oh, forgiveness. Think of how many conflicts whether it's within the neighborhood, the family, the office, or this country and that country, how often when you trace the conflict back, somebody wounded somebody else and they didn't forgive them. They handed the wound back in a corresponding act of revenge or retaliation. And then that person was like, you did that to me, well, I'm going to do this to you. Revenge always escalates. Yeah, think of how many wars when they actually traced it back was like that guy did something to that guy. And now a couple of generations later, this entire tribe is at war with that tribe. So a path on which you can learn how to forgive people. Uh, these things that we all want, these things that we all long for, that we agree are good and better and help the world heal. Um, these things generally don't just magically happen. And so a tradition and a lineage can be incredibly good. Being rooted and anchored and centered in a tradition then allows you, it's like, of course, then you're open to the truth and wisdom and contributions of other traditions. I, I'm rooted and grounded in the Jesus, Jesus tradition, but honestly, the one book that's beside my bed is Rumi, the big red book, 12th century Sufi mystic. I read that guy. <laughs> I'm referring to Rumi as that guy. I read that guy and something happens in my heart every time. Or you, you think about in the Buddhist tradition, uh, suffering and non-attachment and the beautiful contribution to how we understand all of the ways that we needlessly suffer. Or a friend of mine just the other day was talking about in the Hindu tradition, fire and chaos and creation, and how to see your own moments of deconstruction and disorientation and what might be happening in those. And it was an incredibly helpful image, metaphor, picture. So being rooted and anchored and centered in a tradition with that comes a big open embrace of truth and wisdom and contribution wherever you find it. Second thing uh, in regard to Jesus H. Christ is I have interacted with a number of people who came up through the Jesus tradition, um, but because of its—I'm trying to think of what the word is—because of how cut off their particular strand and stripe was from the larger tradition— they mistakenly came up with an understanding that the narrowness of the Jesus tradition that they experienced must mean the whole tradition is like that. So they walked away thinking there was no depth there. Uh, but one of the fascinating things about the Jesus H. Christ tradition is, I mean, Meister Eckhart, have you, the mystics, uh, the second century Celtic spirituality, uh, Therese of Lusseau, the Desert Fathers. Have you read Dorothy Sayers? Have you heard what Dorothy Day says about the poor and hope? Uh, my, my experience is that, honestly, most people 
are vastly ignorant of the depth of brilliance and intelligence and insight that are in the Jesus tradition. Nonviolence, compassion, uh, the extra Thomas Merton, and uh, very, very sophisticated, wise mysticism that will honestly just blow your mind and open your heart. So whenever someone says, I don't want any of that narrow traditional stuff, I literally to myself, honestly, I think to myself, this person has no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> they just have no idea, honestly. Um, oh man, seriously, sometimes somebody will go on one of those rants where they're like, I don't need any of that. And I'll literally be just shaking my head like, I'm so sorry that you managed to come from a place that cut you off so severely from the depths of brilliance and insight that have been there the whole time. Oh, <laughs> man, oh, man. Okay, where was I? I just get so fired. Honestly, I get so fired up about this. Oh, wait. Yeah, another one. Another question uh, or another point as we begin to sort of land this. As my neighbor literally gets out a saw, I don't know if you can hear that. Apparently, they were like, oh, is Rob doing a Robcast? It's probably time to start sawing. Um, oh, yeah, here, and here's a line that I, I think is absolutely central to understanding Jesus. The cosmic needs the particular. The cosmic needs the particular. Otherwise, it's just talk and ideas and stories and abstract concepts. If there's no intersection, if there's no incarnation in space and time with the sweat and blood of this world, then it's just a bunch of nice ideas. Some person who's like, love, man, love, love, and they just keep quoting the Beatles, love is all you need, love is all you need. That person, without actual love given and received in space and time, it's just a song. Are you with me? Do you see what I mean by the cosmic needs the particular? The giant universal truths without being embodied in space and time with actual people with fingers and toes and brains and that you're just, it's just chatter. Uh, if you're struggling with an addiction, like a, like a debilitating this thing is an everyday struggle. You don't just need a concept. You don't just need a nice story. You need liberation right here, right now in flesh and blood. And so what you'll often notice is that people who are exposed to a tribal, narrow Jesus, an exclusive, shrill sort of Jesus, what will often happen is they'll drift away from that narrowness because it was stifling and it couldn't sustain the big questions of life. And then they'll discover myth and story that speak to these deeper human archetypes and patterns, which is incredibly helpful, uh, which can be incredibly helpful for opening us up to the larger non-literal truths, truths that don't fit in nice little literal statements. Ways of understanding and naming the human condition. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. But without the historic, without actions in space and time, without somebody somewhere taking food to somebody who's hungry, without somebody somewhere teaching somebody to read, it's, it can all become fairly squishy. <laughs> Are you with me? So when people say, why do you still... Or something like, you know, why do you still talk about Jesus? Um, I'll talk about whoever you want, but without flesh and blood, without the teeth. Um, so for me, and I know for many others, there is a, a, a subtle power and weight. I'm trying to think how to say that. That's how I'd say it. There's a, there's a power and a weight to holding on in some way 
to the first century Jesus event. It's like a disruption. It's like an inbreaking. It's like a jolt. It's like an insistent cry that history is always vulnerable to an invasion of good. <laughs> I like that one. Do you see what I mean? Because that's what you want. That's what you want in your personal history. That's what I want in my personal history and our history together in the history of people and nations and generations. That's what we want. It's the inbreaking. It's the disruption. A story is fantastic to the degree to which it actually does something that you can feel, that something that acts on you, that actually makes life better for somebody somewhere. Yeah. So what you see these first writers doing is they're taking the historic, the Jesus phenomenon, whatever it is we know about that, and they're saying, he comes to show us what the divine has been up to the whole time, that we aren't alone, that we haven't been abandoned, that there is good news, that there are better futures, that hope is real, that there's a death and resurrection mystery built into the whole thing, and that there can always be a new creation. Let's go back then to wrap this up and talk about the cross, because for many people, uh, the way they were told the Jesus story is Jesus came at the last minute, was sort of inserted in human history to die on the cross so you could go to heaven someday. Let's rewind. Let's leave behind all of the nonsense questions, because if you ask a bad question, you're never going to get an interesting answer. Let's rewind and simply ask, what is the story? How did these first people understand the story? What they understood is that Jesus came to stand up for everybody everywhere who had the boot of empire on their neck. He comes to stand up for everybody everywhere who's in pain, who's hurting, who's found themselves on the underside. And when he does that, as systems tend to do, the system cannot handle this. He speaks truth to power. He's the original rage against the machine, and the system crushes him as these sorts of systems are wont to do. He's executed as an enemy of the state. But then his first followers keep insisting that he'd been resurrected. Now, why did they tell this? They had had some, they kept having these experiences of him. Now, why is that an interesting, compelling story to me? Because... He goes to the cross refusing to engage in the violence that he is on the receiving end of. He goes to his death insisting that nonviolence is the better path because he's executed by a giant military machine that crushes everything in its path in the name of peace. He goes to his death forgiving his enemies and never, like he says to one of his disciples, put your sword away. It's like he's not playing that game. So you can see why his followers in experiencing him as resurrected, you see how they read this. They read this as vindication that his way of loving, forgiving, sacrificial, nonviolence, and generosity really is a better way to make the world. It's almost as if they say, better to die forgiving your enemies than retaliate and keep those same old cycles of revenge and violence in circulation. So you can see why they read cosmic weight and implications into this story. As that's the question now, which way is better? Somebody comes after you. Do you respond or do you trust that love actually wins? See, for them, the particular was always rooted in, in the cosmic. How we act and carry ourselves and treat each other is rooted in these larger convictions about how this whole thing actually works. And they kept insisting that when you move in love, when you move in generosity, when you move in nonviolence, when you forgive everybody for everything, these aren't aberrant, strange ways. 
that have no relevance, that you have actually lined yourself up with how things are at the deepest depths of reality. Yeah, yeah, there's a few thoughts about Jesus H. Christ. In the Gospel of Matthew, he says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. Let's end with the personal. He keeps insisting the reason why these stories do something to you is that you belong, that, that you are a part of a larger oneness. Despite the ways in which you've been wounded, the ways in which you've been betrayed or abandoned, the ways in which life has let you down, he comes to insist that underneath all that you belong. He holds you together. You've been in the Christ the whole time. You exist in love. You are held and sustained by an unconditional acceptance. No matter how far you could wander, you could never wander beyond its grasp. And he comes to invite you to wake up to what's been true about you, your neighbor, and the whole universe the whole time. And that's why they called him Jesus Christ. And may grace and peace be with you, my friends.